I think there is awe and majesty in a starry night as well. On the other hand, actually having some understanding of what those stars are telling us about the universe, to me, actually adds to the awe and, and majesty rather than subtracting from it. And I think the same thing would be true. You know, I think any of us, when we gaze out over the edge of the Grand Canyon, we're struck by, you know, the immensity of the la landscape around us. And, and I'm as awestruck by that as, as, as anyone. But again, I think there is something that actually adds to my appreciation, knowing that those beautiful multicolored layers of rocks that I see lining the canyon are actually telling a story about the planet and help us understand the planet's history as a whole. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 143. And this episode is with Andy Knoll, who is the Fisher Professor of Natural History in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. Annie, Andy, Andy, has done work on a lot of problems out in the field and at a desk, but in general, his work focus straddles the, the line between the early evolution of life on Earth and how this is entangled with its environmental and geological history. So he's written a number of books on these subjects, but the most recent of them is A Brief History of Earth, Four Billion Years in Eight Chapters. And in this episode, we stick to the earliest portions of this history. We talk about when, um, about 4 billion years ago, and how life arose on Earth. And then, just as importantly, how we know about it and what we know about it. Then we turn to some related topics, such as the diversity of microbial life on Earth and how it shaped our environment. And then in just one sense, it's fair to say that microbes are our ancestors because there isn't a linear path between us and them the way that there is with our parents. And then we get into all sorts of other little details. We finish off though by shifting gears a bit and discussing the possibility of life on Mars, uh, past present and future, because Andy was part of NASA's MER, Mayor Mission to Mars, which examined the soil and geology of Mars' surface through two rovers named Spirit and Opportunity. You might recall those from the news in years past. Likes, comments, subscribes, follows, comments subscribes. All of these are extraordinarily helpful. And if you haven't left a review on Spotify or Apple and you've been enjoying the show, it would be wonderful if you could leave one. So now without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Andy. prologue to one of your books, Life on a Young Planet, it begins with a poem by Walt Whitman. I've got it pulled up here. And it, it happens to be one that I really love. I used to have it memorized, but that was a long time ago. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to read it and then talk a bit about how it connects to how you think about your work and, and science more generally before we get to that, that work. Okay, great. So the poem which I'm sure some of our listeners will be familiar with, is When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. 
<clears throat> when I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. So. Yeah, I'm, you know, I think one of the things that whenever you write, you're always trying to understand how you might get into the subject. And at the, at the time, this is 25 years ago, um, I had I, I had been reading Whitman. I like Whitman very much. But this particular poem struck me because, as, at least as I read it, it seemed to be saying that somehow knowledge gets in the way of understanding the awe and majesty of, of the natural world around us. I mean, either that or he's simply you know, whining about a poor lecturer, and I don't think he'd bother to write a poem about that. And, and so I, I guess, at least as, as it struck me, I, I mean, I I think there is awe and majesty in a starry night as well. On the other hand, actually having some understanding of what those stars are telling us about the universe, to me, actually adds to the awe and, and majesty rather than subtracting from it. And I think the same thing would be true. You know, I think any of us, when we gaze out over the edge of the Grand Canyon, we're struck by, you know, the immensity of the la landscape around us. And and I'm as awestruck by that as, as, as anyone. But again, I think there is something that actually adds to my appreciation, knowing that those beautiful multicolored layers of rocks that I see lining the canyon are actually telling a story about the planet and help us understand the planet's history as a whole. So that's pretty much why I, I chose to use that. I, I don't know that everyone would take the same uh, lesson from the poem that I did, but it's it's uh, what uh, kindled the flames to begin with. When you say that whenever, whenever one writes, they need to figure out how to get into the subject, do you just mean how you're going to introduce it to the audience who might not have any background in it and make it compelling to them? Yeah, more or less. Uh, and I think this is true, actually, of scientific papers that I write for my peers. Uh, the hardest things to write are the first page and the last page. Um, you know, the technical details and, and in terms of these kind of books, the, the, the details of the story that you tell are things that you probably should have down pat or you probably shouldn't be writing in the first place. But there, there's always this thing, how do, how do I get in? How do I introduce a subject in a way that might explain why I'm writing, why I'm writing, how it may relate to, you know, the, the thoughts and and stuff of, of, of others. And similarly at, at the end, how do you get out of, uh, a narrative in a way that somehow summarizes it succinctly uh, to just kind of reinforce the story you've been trying to tell. So, so that's really it. I, I think it's you know this it's it's not so much a matter of science as just a matter of trying to construct a compelling narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that what you're saying brings to mind for me is already the Greeks were aware of in rhetoric. There's 
logos, pathos, and ethos. And of course, you need to have the material down, but if you're unable to build a connection with your audience, then it's very difficult for them to get them to absorb and have your work resonate with them. So starting out with something that's emotional, like a poem, helps. And that's one of the reasons, or probably one of the reasons epigraphs have endured so much. Uh, but I'm just going to agree with you at first. I, so I don't think most people see much awe in uh, like a random rock. Uh, someone with geological training like you might, but with just a little understanding of quantum mechanics, just some rock or even a can of Coke becomes this amazing and mysterious object. Yet uh, one other thing that you said in your book, uh, in the introduction, I I I, I wrote it down, but does ignorance really outstrip understanding as the preferred route to wonder? And I don't think that by any means you're saying that we shouldn't have wonder. Uh, that's I'm not I'm not attributing that to you, but I I see there is definitely room for both, and it's the awareness of the ignorance and the visceral experience of wonder that often at least fuels one initial foray into the statistics and diagrams as a way of deeper understanding. But I mean, I witness it often, especially in myself, that one can lose sight of the whole by dwelling too much on the technical dimensions of a field and miss the bigger picture. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with, with what you're saying, and it's consistent with what I was hoping to convey in the introduction to that book, that um, by all means... We don't want to lose our sense of awe and wonder at, at the world around us. And for many of us, it is that awe and wonder that inspires us to travel down the roads of science to begin with. Um, I, I just sort of felt that somehow in his poem, uh, Whitman was perhaps shortchanging what the knowledge part can do, because to me, um, knowing something about the universe and the stars and that really adds to the the awe and and, and wonder so i um you know that maybe ignorance isn't the isn't the the right word because it touches off too many uh flames but i i, I think that the more understanding we have of the world around us the more we will appreciate its wonders because they're, they're just as wonderful if you understand them as if mm -hmm. you don't. Absolutely. As we're about to get into, I mean, your books are filled with wonderful pictures. They're particularly wonderful for someone like me who hasn't visited some of the sites like that in Namibia in the background, where if I were just to look at these pictures, I would see striated rocks. <laughs> but with the aid of microscopes and the accompanying explanations in the text, you realize, wow, these are filled with fossilized remains of creatures very different from us, some of which are still almost, they're, they have relatives that are extant, but in many ways, they're quite different from anything we know today. But a nice way, I think, to start off this conversation will be to put some of these massive numbers around the age of the universe, life, the big shifts in climate and chemistry in perspective before we begin to delve into the specifics. Uh, first of all, I think the universe is generally 
thought to be around 13.7 billion years old at present, though this number is subject to change pending the the constant refinement of cosmological models. But how old is the Earth and how long has life been around? Okay, well, the Earth is about 4.56 billion years old. And, and we know that because the materials out of which the solar system formed very early in the solar system solar system's history aggregated to form the planets including the earth and some of the materials from that earliest stage of the solar system that did not aggregate into planets became in the fullness of time meteorites that struck the earth and so we can actually use radioactivity to date those and so the age of the earth being a little more than four and a half billion years old is very well established now the hard part with life is that we literally have no rocks from the first 500 million years of earth history and the reason for that is that you know we when we were talking earlier we get the sense that earth records its own history and things like sedimentary rocks on the other hand, while the Earth is writing with one hand, it is erasing with the other through erosion and tectonic processes and this. And as we go back through time, the record of any given time period gets smaller and smaller and smaller until we get to four billion years ago. And that's what we have. Now, if you then ask, well, how far back can we trace life? It pretty much is the case that we run out of rocks to look at before we run out of evidence for life. So while we don't know whether life began 4.1, 4.2 billion years ago, who knows? What we do know is that Earth has been a biological planet for most of its history. Mm -hmm. uh, you said you used the phrase writing and, uh, writing and erasing this process of erosion and other geological processes. And it sounds a lot like a Sherlock Holmes story. And as I read about you and your colleagues traveling to various sites, searching for clues, debating alternate hypotheses, practically like uh, metaphorically dusting for fingerprints, it is very much uh, like a mystery novel in a, in a, I can see you're ready to, ready to respond. Well, I, I, I was going to respond only because, uh, one of my teachers and colleague and friend for many years was the late Stephen oh, Jay wow, Gould. Great. And one of my favorite essays by Steve is one where he is trying to explain how science actually works. And he did it by comparing two different detectives. One was Sherlock Holmes, for whom everything is deductive and logical. And, you know, you, you come upon the right answer because you've exhausted all the other possibilities. And the other was uh, Peter Whimsey, the detective of Dorothy Sayre. And he recounts Whimsey just sitting in his easy chair, completely befuddled by what he's come across as evidence. And he pours himself a glass of wine. And then in a moment, the wine glass goes crashing to the floor and everything makes sense. And Steve's point was that we all would like to think that science works like uh, Sherlock Holmes, but in truth, it probably works more like Peter Whimsey that, uh, you know, you just don't understand things and then just something slips into place. It might be something you see on an outcrops under the microscope, a chance comment somebody else makes, 
and then it all fits. Well, this will take us on a bit of a tangent, but I, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, read some of Stephen Jay Gould's work and Richard Dawkins, these sorts of people when I was just learning about this world of evolutionary biology, but he hasn't been around for a while. (laughs) Naturally, I haven't had the chance to have him on the podcast. Most of what I know about him, his character is from other writers. Like he comes up in Daniel Dennett's work often, but I understand that he was a big character and a huge, he was a huge figure in the intellectual culture of the Academy. What was, what was he like? What was working with him like? Well, it, it, you know, I had a long association with Steve. Um, When I was in graduate school, he was one of my committee members and he was a young scientist at the time and really making his scientific, uh, really his scientific reputation, which was in many ways to infuse some modern concepts of evolutionary biology into our thinking about the fossil record, although at the same time, he was actually a very gifted historian of of science and in a way really unpacking for the rest of us the the thinking that had through time led to to current concepts. And in those days, he was he was wonderful. He was always available. He was full of thoughts, uh, generally thoughts that would would help you a great deal. Um, And then I went off uh, taught at Oberlin College for five years. And then when I, I came back to Harvard for years, Steve and I used to teach courses together. And and that was great fun, too, because he was always very interactive with the students. Um, I think through time, Steve became more concerned about writing than generating new paleontological knowledge. But that's OK. He was a gifted writer. And so we, we all benefit from his writings. But, uh, you know, all, all in all, um, I, I guess I feel privileged to have... Uh, known him and uh been a friend and learned from him for you know 30 years right. i read i know that one of his books that i read i don't recall the title you might know or maybe he wrote many on this subject but was on the burgess burgess shale which right wonderful yes. life and that i can see immediately how it makes important contributions to the connection of evolutionary biology and the fossil record but so I think you said that, maybe you didn't say, maybe I'm just recalling this from reading, that life, even though the Earth is about 4.56 billion years ago, life is thought to have been around for about 4 billion years, which is on that order, which is a, a very long time. And to put that number in perspective, how long have the macroscopic forms of life, so like fish, plants, fungi, been around? And when did the when did the microscopic creatures essentially have to seed ground to them? Well, the first thing to say is that we still live in a bacterial world. Uh, and I've said, I think I said it in, in Life on a Young Planet, that uh, animals are the ev- evolution, the icing on evolution's cake, but bacteria are the cake. And I think that's true. Um, the world would do just fine without plants and animals. It did so for three and a half billion years. Um, on the other hand, the world would not wind down very quickly in the absence of bacteria, since they have all sorts of metabolic processes that are not found in more complicated animals like plants and animals. So I'm, I'm, I'm a 
rigorous defender of, of the bacteria. Now that said, while you know there's still 30 tons of bacteria on this planet for every ton of animals, um, about, I think the, the oldest macroscopic animal fossils that we know of are about 575 million years old. So, you know, of that 4 billion year history of life, 85% of it is microbial and, and animals are latecomers, plants and animals both get on land more on the order of 450 to 400 million years ago. So what we consider the modern world, even in its broadest aspects, is, you know, a, a fairly an, an evolutionary latecomer. And it, it won't surprise you to know that there are actually environmental correlates to that. You know, until about 600 million years ago, it seems that the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere and oceans was very low. And for various reasons we, we could discuss, uh, oxygen starts a trajectory toward its current high level about the same time when we first start seeing animals. And then it really, you know, has the great push through to reach modern levels of oxygen on the same time scale that we start having plants and trees and things that will actually contribute to coal, which is important because when you know organic matter is made by taking CO2 and water and producing organic matter and oxygen, if you bury the organic matter to form coal, um, the oxygen has nobody to dance with and can accumulate in the atmosphere. So it, it it's an interesting story in that the history of Earth's environment or the physical Earth and the history of life are fairly complexly intertwined through the, through the whole story. A few things that you say demand, okay, everything you said demands further questions, but two things that come to mind, I think you said that there are 30 tons of microbial life for every ton of animal life. And okay, there, there, I'm guessing that if I weigh 170 pounds, there's five i don't know how many pounds of microbes living in my gut throughout spread throughout my body but where is all of this microbial life because we can't see it, it but it but it outweighs us by 30 times so is it just if i if i look out my window i see all of these services the air the soil if i just kind of scoop it all up and sift out the microbes that's where it all i guess it that's where it has to be but yeah um, yeah, this, this, uh, uh, an interesting team at the Weizmann Institute made a, uh, quantitative estimate of, uh, you know, how much biomass is, is allotted to each of the major groups of life a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's probably not, not far off, uh, in that estimate. In fact, more than half of the living biomass is in plants, although that, that's kind of cheating because a tree uh, wood turns out to be made of non-living tissues. So, you know, 90% of a pine tree outside your door is, is non-living. But that that aside, um, you know, bacteria occur throughout the oceans. They occur in sediments. They occur in, in soils. Uh, they occur in the subsurface of the earth. There's a, a fairly robust subsurface microbial biota and so when, when you add it all up they're they're all over the place and and you're right that 
by weight, you are mostly uh, uh, a human, but by cell number or individuals or cell number, you are probably mostly bacteria. Well, the the other thing that I wanted to touch on is you said that things would wind down very quickly without bacteria. And just historically speaking, it's kind of amazing that for thousands of years of biology, though we might want to say that biology started with Aristotle, so 2,000 years and some change, it's amazing that biologists had to attempt to make sense of the circle of life to speak figuratively without the faintest clue of the most crucial part of the ecosystem because they had no idea that these things were around. But I think this will come up more if we have a chance to touch on how your work connects with astrobiology. But the earth was not, as you've already indicated, at its conception endowed with the atmosphere that we currently enjoy. And rather, it was fashioned over time by geological and importantly, biological processes. So just starting again, putting us in perspective, what was the earth like 4 billion years ago when around that time, the first life arose? Okay. Well, one of the things we've known from the chemists who have done prebiotic chemistry experiments over the years uh, is that none of the experiments that are designed to generate from physical precursors, simple physical precursors, the building blocks of life, work if there's oxygen around just doesn't happen um and so even just from that experimental perspective it suggests that the early earth would have been oxygen poor and certainly there are uh chemical um signatures of the radox state of of the atmosphere and oceans which are encrypted into sedimentary rocks and and they agree that on the early earth um there was essentially no free oxygen gas um and also four billion years ago the earth uh, is increasingly thought to have been more or less a water world that is that if you had looked at the earth from you know some satellite platform you would have seen a global ocean with volcanoes sticking up here and there and maybe a little bit of uh, things that are made of the same kind of crust as as continents, but it was a very different world, both both physically and and chemically. Well, I, I would like to get back a little later to this idea that with oxygen in the atmosphere, the precursors of life cannot form. Because if we're going to talk about early life, we need to talk about how early life formed. But we'll get to that in a little bit. First, I just wanted to ask one last context setting sort of question. And just again, to highlight how little most people, myself absolutely included in this, probably know about the period between now and even hundreds of millions of years ago, I learned from looking at your book that the first dinosaurs existed before the first flowers, which is certainly not the chronology I would have expected. So are there any other majorly surprising cutoffs or orderings in distant evolution that come to mind just offhand? Yeah, I don't know that there's, at least to me, uh, the ordering isn't isn't too surprising. And I'm not too surprised that dinosaurs could have existed before flowering plants because, you know, the first 
land vertebrate animals, first amphibians, came ashore about 360 million years ago, something like that. And so even dinosaurs reflect an antecedent more than 100 million years of, of terrestrial vertebrate evolution. Um, I think what is interesting is the role that, again, physical processes play in shaping the evolutionary trajectory, because um, as many of, of your listeners may know, the reason we don't have dinosaurs today, if you don't count birds, which are actually genealogically dinosaurs, um, dinosaurs were wiped out by a meteorite uh, that pummeled the earth 66 million years ago. And our familiar world of mammals really only took shape in the aftermath of that. Animals diversified mightily once uh, dinosaurs were, were out of the picture. So uh, again, um, it's very hard to get away when you look at the history of life without thinking about the history of the physical world. And it's equally hard to explain the history of the physical world without considering life. Well, I I have used the word perspective uh, a seemingly inordinate amount of time in times in this conversation already. But when you're dealing with these time scales, it's crucial. Still, uh, another sort of perspective that I'd like to keep in mind as we keep going is that science is an activity rather than some metaphorical compendium of facts. So, I'd really like to talk or keep in the back of our our back of our conversation about the acquisition and, and discovery uh, you've been part of, of the information we're getting into. So that being said, let's get into the earliest of life on earth and what, what specific fossiliferous, a, a new word I learned, uh, what specific fossiliferous site contains what have been dated to be the earliest fossilized remains of life? Yeah, um, life can leave its calling card in the rock record in several different ways. And I think most people would agree that some of the oldest uh, little altered rocks that we can look at are about three and a half billion years old. There's some of them in South Africa. There's some of them in Australia. And those contain several different calling cards for life. Uh, one is... If you if you go to a place like the Bahamas today, you'll find in some areas along the coastline, there are just these carpets of microbes, mostly a group of photosynthetic bacteria called cyanobacteria. And these microbial mats can actually trap and bind sediments and build three-dimensional structures called stromatolites that get preserved in the rock record. And in three and a half billion year old rocks, from Western Australia in some of the earliest carbonate or limestone-like rocks that we know of, there are stromatolites. And we've done work with some Australian colleagues that make, I think, a compelling case that these did require microbial communities to, to make. Um, at the same time, there are chemical records of life. So for example, photosynthetic organisms, when they take CO2 and fix it into sugars, um, it turns out that carbon as an element comes in three flavors. About 99% of all the carbon atoms on this planet have six protons and six neutrons. So it's called carbon 12, it's molecular weight. About 1% of 
has an extra neutron, carbon-13, and that's stable. And then a couple parts per trillion are carbon-14, which is radioactive and decays on a time scale of thousands of thousands of years. So the, the reason I bring that up is that when a plant or a cyanobacterium, for that matter, takes in CO2, it preferentially incorporates carbon dioxide that has the lighter isotope of carbon, carbon-12. And by using an, an instrument called a mass spectrometer, you can actually calculate the C13 to C12 ratio. And in modern environments, if you look at, say, limestones accumulating in the Bahamas and organic matter in the same sediments, they differ by about 25 parts per thousand. And when you go back in time, that persists, and it persists all the way back into these three and a half billion year old rocks. So we think that's strong evidence that there was a biological carbon cycle at the time. I could have told a similar story about sulfur, that there was a biological sulfur cycle. And then finally, there's the question of, of actual microfossils. And, and I've spent many years working on microfossils in sort of Earth's middle age, the so-called Proterozoic eon. And, and they're abundant, they're well-preserved, uh, they're interpretable. But what you see in these three and a half billion year old rocks are just very simple spheres. And it is challenging to interpret them. So there's a lot that we don't understand about life three and a half billion years ago, but we think A, it was there, B, there were biological carbon and sulfur cycles, and C, the ecosystems worked without oxygen. Okay, again, a number of things. Is the idea that these stromatolites in any of these given sites were formed by masses of cyanobacteria or by a different type of organism? that just happened to form stromatolites? That, that's an important point. We don't know that these oldest stromatolites were made by cyanobacteria. Um, I think for Earth middle age and going up to the present because stromatolites still form in some areas, uh, cyanobacteria are the major architects, but it's possible that some other kind of bacterium, in fact, something that may no longer exist was important three and a half billion years ago. And then you already indicated this, but that there is controversy over some of these findings. And what I find myself wondering is what are the sorts of alternatives that could make sense of the simultaneous presence of stromatolites, the ratio of carbon-13, the, the sulfurous evidence, the difficult to interpret uh, potential microfossils that are spherical in nature. What what compelling evidence or what compelling alternatives are there that could account for this? Well, yeah, I, I think that it is not controversial to state that the geologic record records life of three and a half billion years ago. And I think it's from there that it gets more difficult. Some people will say, oh, there must have been cyanobacteria. But I think that's an overinterpretation. Um, we do know that there are physical processes that can produce this variation in carbon isotopes that we see. In fact, the most famous of all origin of life experiments, the first one by uh, Stanley Miller in 1953, uh, that those reactions actually, what's called fractionate carbon isotopes, they actually result in products 
that are depleted in uh, carbon-13. But if you look at the details, it's very hard to take those kind of physical processes and account for the record as a whole that we see at that at that time. So I, th I think that the broad statement that there was a biological carbon cycle is well supported. Also, when you look at stromatolites, yeah, there are physical processes in which uh, basically the minerals of limestone simply precipitate and can form layers that way. But again, there are details that can differentiate between microbial mats and uh, and physical processes. And even at three and a half billion years ago, we see some of this telltale textural evidence that I think really requires that there was uh, biological processes. With actual microfossils, it, it's more difficult. Uh, we actually wrote a paper some years ago where one of our, our graduate students in the department had been doing work on about 800 million year old rocks from Northwestern Canada. And he brought over just to look at well, someday, well, uh, some, what's called thin sections, paper thin slices of rock glued to a microscope slide and you look at them under the microscope. And much of what we were looking at was simply the kind of textures that you see in rocks of this age all over the world. But there were little veins through which hydrothermal fluids had uh, percolated. And in those veins, there was actually um, some movement, transport of organic material, which then spontaneously condensed into 10 or 20 micron spheres. Looks for all the world like what you see in these three and a half billion year old rocks. And we know from independent evidence that three and a half billion year, years ago, most sediments were shot through with hydrothermal fluids at some point. In, in in their existence. So again, we can argue the details and, and a lot remains unknown about these things, but I think the, the overall statement that life was there and it didn't use oxygen is, I, I think that's pretty compelling. At this well, point. actually, I, I didn't want to cut you off, but I have it on very good authority from a few reliable canonical text that life is in fact only about 6,000 years old. So I, I, I don't think, <laughs> think that we should overlook these highly reliable sources, but uh, we will uh, for the purposes of this conversation. Um, how, uh, I think, I think you, you mentioned this or to be clear, that was a joke, <laughs> but yes, <not. laughs> okay. Um, That's why I'm still okay. on the line. <laughs> um, well, when I, when I talked to, astrophysicists i find myself often making jokes about aliens and i occasionally get worried that they think that i'm actually i mean it's not that it isn't a topic that shouldn't be discussed and we'll get to astrobiology it's important but it needs to be taken with needs to be treated seriously i suppose is what i wanted to say but you already mentioned a little bit about how these rocks are dated, but carbon dating hasn't really come up on the show before. And I think it might be interesting to hear about just how we know, for instance, that these sites, the rocks there are 3.5 billion years old. Um, it all has to do with radioactivity. 
discovery, what, in 1899 by Becquerel, something like this. Um, and in radioactivity, there are some forms of elements that are radioactive, which means that on various time scales, they spontaneously uh, transform into other elements. They might shoot off an electron or something like this, but they 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 do actually they actually have finite lifetimes and they transform into something else that can be stable. And it turns out that nearly all isotopes known on Earth are radioactive. The stable ones, the ones that make up the world around us for the most part, are are relatively few. Now, most of these radioactive elements have very short so-called half-lives, uh, and so they don't last very long. But some of them have very long half-lives, and and the most important one is uranium, where two different radioactive isotopes of uranium break down to form stable lead. And we can measure the rate at which that happens in the, uh, in the laboratory. So we now have a natural chronometer. And there's a particular mineral that's beloved by geologists called zircon. Uh, it's what, if you ever have cubic zirconium jewelry, we're talking about zircons. Uh, zircons are, are these incredibly hard minerals. They form by the same processes that make granite, for example. And uh, what's interesting about them is that the crystal lattice of a zircon as it forms can incorporate uranium, but it cannot incorporate lead. So any lead that you find in an ancient zircon had to get there by the radioactive breakdown of, of uranium. And because of that, we can date zircons rather precisely. Um, and what, what, one of the things that's interesting about that is I, I said earlier, there are no rocks that are older than 4 billion years on Earth, but there are some zircons that appear as sand grains in younger sandstones that go back to 4.4 billion years. So it, it is, again, just to uh, recapitulate, it is the process of radioactivity. It is the ability to measure the rate at which different uh, isotopes break down into stable daughter products. And it is then the geologic fieldwork that allows us to go out and date rocks. So for example, if you look at that, at the uh, rocks behind me, um, near the base of that cliff down by the river, in this region, there are volcanic ash beds. And those volcanic ash beds actually have zircons in them. And the zircons are something like 546 plus or minus 1 million years old. So that gives us a precise datum, if you will, that helps us to calibrate the rock record. And whenever you see a, a, a geologic time scale, it's the result of thousands of geologists over many decades going out, finding volcanic rocks in uh, places that allow us to correlate them with fossils or climatic events. And we build up the time scale from that. If there are no rocks that are 4.5 billion years old on Earth, though 
we do have some zircons. <laughs> Why, if the rocks that we do have and have found good evidence for life in them, even if the nature of that life is still a bit questionable. Why is it reasonable on this basis to conjecture that life originated half a billion years earlier, even though, of course, at those timescales, it's fuzzy? But why why half a billion years? Yeah, there are some so-called metamorphic rocks, that is, rocks that have been subjected to, uh, originally sedimentary rocks that have been subjected to heat and pressure. And rocks back to at least 3.9 billion years old do show evidence of this carbon isotopic signature that we see elsewhere. So it's only one line of evidence. It's nicer to have, have multiple ones, but we basically see nothing in the preserved rock record that, um, you know, is easily associated with an abiological world. So, you know, if you tell me, well, it was really 3.9 billion years ago, fine. I mean, 4 billion years is a number that's brooded about because it's about the biggest or the, you know, the simplest large number that uh, you can associate with this. But yeah, sure. There's, there's a fair amount of uncertainty. I think we, most models for the evolution of the earth's surface suggest that there would have been liquid water um, well before 4 billion years. And so, you know, the origin of life could have taken place very early. We just don't know. One other thing about um, the origin of life and life on Earth that I think bears thinking about is that when people think about life in the universe, they commonly think about, you know, is it likely or unlikely that life will begin on a given planet or moon? And for all we know, it, it may actually be fairly, fairly simple. Um, I, I think it's worth at least considering that what is potentially unusual about Earth is not that life began here, but that it's persisted for 4 billion years. That is not a given for any planetary system. And it, it may, you know, it's certainly what led to technological humans in the long run. Uh, and it may be something that is much less widespread than the origin of life on different planets. Now, my knowledge on the scholarship of life's immediate origins is pretty much limited to some of Richard Dawkins' books in which he describes a hypothetical process in the primordial ooze and of this world in which molecules through a process of natural selection become increasingly complex and develop primitive self-replication abilities. And then these self-replicating proto-creatures then develop modes of protection, so primitive cell, cell walls, for instance. And on and on this goes until something like the early creatures we've just been discussing arose. So how closely does this picture I just described correspond to the origins of life on our planet as you see it? Of course, not entertaining, in this case, the, the panspermia hypothesis and because you are you already mentioned this a little when when you said that the early chemistry wouldn't have happened without with oxygen in the environment yeah yeah um, th there's actually uh a very rigorous and vigorous uh laboratory research effort on uh 
so-called prebiotic chemistry. And in, in a sense, it is, as you've described, a perspective that goes back to the Miller-Urey experiment, which really kicked this whole chapter in scholarship off. And, and that is what Stanley Miller did was basically took um, ammonia, water, uh, methane, uh, missing something, uh, CO2, and and put them in a flask and ran sparks through them uh, to simulate lightning passing through the early atmosphere. And, you know, after this was going for a fairly short time period, he started noticing brown gook accumulating on the sides of his beakers. And when he analyzed that, there were a number of amino acids that had been created. So we we know through not only this, but a large body of work under various conditions uh, since then, that it is fairly straightforward to make the basic building blocks of life from simple inorganic precursors under plausible planetary conditions. So you can make amino acids, you can make sugars, you can make lipids, um, and in fact, people have now succeeded in even making, you know, the the materials that make up DNA and thing, things like this. So getting those precursors is fairly simple. Now, it gets more challenging when you start to link them together into fun functional entities that actually interact with one another so that, you know, when when you replicate your own DNA, you need proteins to do that work. And yet you need nucleic acids to code for the proteins that they're doing the work. So how do we get nucleic acids and proteins to work together? And that's that's still something where there, there are a lot of unknowns. But one of the things that's, that's kind of fun is an idea that's been around since the 1970s, but seems to have a new life, is that many proteins actually function with the help of what are called cofactors. Uh, some of the vitamins are cofactors, for example. And many of those cofactors actually have a chemistry that it resembles that of, you know, DNA or, or RNA. And so it, some people think, and I think it's, you know, you can't prove it, but it's not unreasonable, is that early on, you do, as Dawkins described in, in, in your statements, have nucleic acids that can self-replicate. And we do know now that uh, some nucleic acids can actually function like enzymes. We usually think of proteins as enzymes, the things that actually do the work in the cell. But some nucleic acids can do that. And through time, we seem to have, you know, it may be that the intermediate in leading to the world of proteins was some of these cofactors that, you know, maybe that the, the amino acids of the proteins were originally there to stabilize the cofactors and then became the most important part of it. Um, and and so all of these things are, are possible. Um, progress is being made on a year by year basis yet, but there I think getting that interaction between proteins and nucleic acids that is the, the basis of modern life, we're not quite there yet. Um, as far as environments, um, 
you know, Darwin talked about a warm little pond in a letter from what, the 1870s. And more and more people are looking to lakes because lakes can concentrate these organic materials. Lakes can dry up and, and re-wet, which actually facilitates forming polymers now too. So uh, we actually live at a moment in the history of thinking about the origin of life where there are insights coming from various perspectives ranging from earth history to experimental chemistry to insights from molecular biology that are you know slowly putting things together we know a lot more than we did when i was a boy and i suspect that we'll know a lot more when the boys born today and the girls born today are my age well i personally prefer another theory uh, one that i think is much more elegant parsimonious beautiful and that's spontaneous generation where if if you have a a bale of hay in just the right barn uh, eventually mice will spontaneously appear i i much prefer prefer that but i i do understand that it has fallen out of favor and you so you've just pointed to a number of theoretical and conceptual tools i mean experiments chemistry etc that bridge this gap between the period in which we know that there was no life and these early fossil records. So we have an understanding of how the basic building blocks of life could have formed. Beyond this, are there any sorts of structures or features of the early proto-life that we have a pretty good idea of how they might have formed? So for instance, I, I have the understanding that maybe a primitive light sensing mechanism. We can understand how that might have formed or something like flagella, uh, little ways that tiny creatures can propel themselves about. Are there structures like these that we can just see how they, they happen through natural selection from these basic or slightly more complex than the basic building blocks? Um, it, 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 it's, it's fairly complicated and fairly tough. And I, and I should say, before I get into it, uh, with regard to uh, spontaneous generation, uh, several months ago, I took part in a celebration of Louis Pasteur's 200th birthday at the Ecole Normale Superior in Paris. And I have to say that old Pasteur was pretty hard on spontaneous <laughs> generation. So. Yeah, well, I can't blame him. I do, I do think it... It's fun. <laughs> it's fun to think about. I like. I mean, it's fun to try to put your head in in other people's heads when when they didn't have the science that we have. Oh sure, yeah. No, no. I I think in the 1600s that made as much sense as anything. Uh, and and again, it was you know you, you talked earlier about most of the history of thinking about life was a history that didn't include bacteria, and and really it you know it, I think it is because uh Pasteur was one of the early people to appreciate what bacteria are and what they're doing that allowed him to have these these experimental insights with regard to spontaneous generation but be that as it may um there are certain things that we have some confidence in so for example it is possible to make 
lipids by nine biological processes. And if you look at, there's a whole class of meteorites called carbonaceous chondrites that can have several percent organic matter in them. And that includes lipids and they're made, you know, abiologically. Nice things about fatty meteors. Yeah, basically. And if one of the things that we know is if you have lipids in water and you splash the water, they will spontaneously form spherical vesicles. And when you put them in, let's say, a beaker with, uh, you know, amino acids or, or polymers of amino acids, uh, peptides, and then let it dry out and let it wet again several times, you'll find out that some of those peptides are now actually inside the vesicles. So very simply, the the the, the most basic overall features of a cell, which is to have a protective membrane on the outside and the actual chemical work of the of the cell on the inside, that all makes sense. Um, precisely how that happened, what the course that takes us from there to a simple bacterium is, there, there's a lot to learn. Um, and then, you know, when it gets to more complicated things, and a, a flagellum is actually... Uh, a, a fairly complex thing. There's lots of proteins and everything in it. Uh, we get some insights from comparative biology. And so, you know, we, we know, for example, that the mitochondria in your cells originated as free living bacteria that essentially became symbionts inside a host cell. We know that the chloroplasts of an oak tree started as originally free living cyanobacteria that were incorporated and essentially reduced to metabolic slavery with, within uh, a host. So there are things that, that we know. Um, and I think once we get into, you know, the last common ancestor of all extant life, which is already a complex organism, from there on, I think we can make reasonable insights from, you know, comparative biology, from uh molecular biology that sort of thing it's getting from the miller urey experiment to the last common ancestor that uh is exciting uh and and we're learning a lot but there's still a lot to learn this question of the last common ancestor though is a i think a much more complex question than people realize in the case of humans we understand that there is i i don't I don't remember what the technical term for her is, but we all have a common mother ancestor sometime back in Africa. I don't know if it's a, a couple hundred thousand years ago, something on this order. Maybe you want to correct me there, but yeah, it's something called mitochondria. Yes, exactly. That's that all of our mitochondria and are descended from a, a single woman, but, but that's not quite right, the same right. concept. The, that's what I was going to get to. So am I right that it would not nearly be so simple as drawing a straight line from these early organisms to humans in a tree of life diagram? Because if I am right, I think it would be interesting to touch just briefly on the notion of like horizontal transfer or otherwise how we might be thought of as chimeras or compositions, because even the mitochondria that you just mentioned indicate that this process is not entirely linear 
Yeah. No, those those are good questions. And I, and I think when I say the last common ancestor of it can be of, of humans, it can be of mammals, it can be, you, you know, you, you name it. That's really a phylogenetic concept, which is to say that, you know, through a combination of anatomy, morphology and molecular biology, we are building uh, an ever more refined sense of the genealogical or evolutionary relationships among extant organisms. And if we have that, you know, if we know, you know, the evolutionary relationships of among all mammals, for example, we can make some reasonable insight, in, insights or with some, you know, reasonable thoughts about features that the last common ancestor of all mammals might have had. We may not know it in detail, but we would suggest that it had hair, it had mammary glands, it had certain kind of teeth, certain kind of bone structures, that sort of thing. And so that's really what we're, we're talking about. And when we talk about the last common ancestor of all cells, at the very least, it had proteins, it had DNA, it had a, you know, a genome, it had lipids, it had various types of, of, of physiological pathways. Um, and all again, all that really comes from looking at the features of its descendants and then sort of logically going down through the tree to see which ones must, must have been there already at the basal node of, of that tree. So that that's, I think, what we're yeah, talking yeah. What about. I'm what I'll just put my own spin on what I'm getting at is that not only do branches on the tree of life split, but they also converge so that mitochondria have their own DNA and had an independent evolution. Uh, at some point from humans and then at some point the they became encapsulated in our cells and a symbi symbiotic relationship was born so that's why what i mean it's yeah and 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 so yeah I, again mitochondria are a good example we know because we can look at their uh sequence structure of of their dna that the ancestors of mitochondria belong to a group called the alpha proteobacteria. And so if you draw a tree of alpha proteobacteria, one of those branches is the mitochondria. And that allows us to make some inferences about what the ancestor of that mitochondrion might have, have looked like. And as far as we know, if we then look at the tree of eukaryotic life, that is, uh, organisms that have membrane-bounded nuclei, the last common ancestor of all extant eukaryotic organisms had mitochondria. So we can argue about how they got there, and uh, th there's a lot of, you know, a lot of debate about some of those details, but I think we can, we, we, we do understand that both at the level of organelles and at the level of individual genes, uh, there is horizontal gene transfer. And it, it particularly means you have to be cautious when you make trees of things like bacteria because they have fairly rampant uh, horizontal gene, gene transfer. But it also makes a picture that can become quite compelling. Um, you know, if you look, for example, at uh, uh, mutations that convey uh, defenses against antibiotics. Uh, 
we can see how those move from one bacterial group to another, uh, much to the chagrin of the medical community. Um, but again, if you if you recognize that these things occur, there are various ways in which you can dive in and try to get a sense of how they've occurred, when they've occurred, what the consequences are for the groups that they, you know, that they now invade, if you will. Um, and that's, that's a very exciting mm-hmm. field. A, f- a few thoughts. One are this whole discussion of horizontal transfer and, and mergings of the tree of life and branchings. It is helpful. I think in, in these instances to take the, the genes eye view of evolution that Dawkins proposed where you think of as uh, life as the pro- proliferation of genes rather than organisms uh, or species. But also we're, we're now players in the game of horizontal transfer with uh, technologies like CRISPR, where we're moving tomato genes to another creature. And then the last thing that I wanted to say is that although with something like mitochondria, this takes place on, well, maybe again, this is a place to correct me on geological timescales. It must, it was probably a very long time. It took a very long time for uh, mitochondria to become part of ourselves, but this is an interesting place for contemporary research as well. My understanding is that within entomology, there are a lot of cases in which we see different organisms living together symbiotically in a way that could presage a potential merging of the species. So one instance from myrmecology that comes to mind is these ants that sort of ferry around aphids and eat aphid poop, basically. The the nectar, or I don't recall what the what the term is for what they secrete, but it's been hypothesized by some myrmecologists that over the course of, I don't know, thousands or millions of years, they might merge. Yeah, uh, again, you, you touch on a, on an important point in a very active field of research now that the idea that, you know, animals are completely separate from from microbes simply is isn't true as, as we talked earlier um you have probably more bacterial cells in your body than you do human cells and at least some of those bacteria in in your intestine play an important role in helping you to digest food uh they have some regulatory capacity to them and and there's a very active research program on both the functionality and evolution of these symbioses. I I think, you know, probably every animal has microbial symbionts of some type. Um, It also has a lot of, you know, many of the bacteria in your gut, probably doesn't matter whether they're there or not, and a very few of them are harmful. Um, But I think it is the normal state of animal life to have some intimate relationships with bacteria without which the animal's life would be difficult, if not impossible. 
Uh, the same thing is true of plants and bacteria, plants and fungi. Uh, we're now understanding that the biological world is, is much more integrated than maybe was thought thought in the past. And the more we learn, the more remarkable that, that story becomes. Yeah. B before I respond to what you just immediately said, I'll, I'll add, I started this podcast a few years too late because I would have loved to have E.O. Wilson on the show. Uh, the Insect Societies is one of the most thought-provoking books I've ever read. And uh, hopefully there will be many entomologists and myrmecologists on the, on the show in the future. But the last thing that you said was that the biological world is integrated. And while it's integrated, it's also extremely diverse and continuing to get diverse-er. Uh, but returning now to our our thread of early life, what are some different ways in which these earliest life forms made their livings? I mean, we're most familiar with creatures that eat and breathe and then others that make energy out of sunlight, but what are some of the other options? I saw that there were iron breathing bacteria at some point. There uh, still are. They're probably oh, in your house. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, that's why, it pays to pay attention to the ways that bacteria make a living because, you know, animals respire aerobically, which they can only do because they have mitochondria, which used to be bacteria. Plants photosynthesize, which they can only do because they have originally symbiotic cyanobacteria for pho photosynthesis. But when you get into bacteria, you know, many of them can respire in the absence of oxygen because they can use other oxidants, things like sulfate, uh, oxidized iron, some uh, nitrate uh, to, as, as oxidants for respiration. Uh, there are six or seven different kinds of photosynthesis that uh, don't use water as a source of electrons and don't generate oxygen. There are metabolisms that only bacteria and their cousins, the archaea, can do, uh, like chemosynthesis, that is uh, something like photosynthesis in which you fix CO2 into organic matter, but the energy comes from chemical reactions rather than than sunlight. And and so if you look back at those, um, again, I think there's, there's considerable uncertainty about what uh, early metabolisms were, but there are at least many people who believe that they did involve very early on carbon fixation Via, via a process that's now only found in, in some microbes and probably were chemosynthetic. That is, they took advantage of chemical gradients on the early earth and used that to drive the fixation of carbon. Um, now, in some ways, the key um, me metabolism to evolve was so-called oxygenic photosynthesis, which we always think of as green plant photosynthesis, although we really ought to think about it as cyanobacterial photosynthesis because they're the only group of organisms ever to evolve it de novo. And in that one, um, water supplies the electrons needed to reduce CO2 to organic molecules, and oxygen is given off as a byproduct. And that 
without that evolutionary event, we would never have come to have an oxygen rich planet. So um, it's, it's just maybe the primary example of Earth's physical environment having a strong dependence on uh, the activities of organisms. I'm not sure if the nominalization of something that undergoes chemosynthesis is a chemosynthesizer or a chemosynthete. I prefer chemosynthete, I think, for just aesthetic purposes, but I'd like to talk about them for a minute. Do we have reason to believe that there were extremophiles already early in Earth's history. I was I was actually pleasantly surprised to see that a Stanford researcher uh, once proposed that places like super hot deep sea vents may have been among the only places on Earth to survive at times in Earth's early history, such as when it was being uh, bomb- bombarded by meteors. Yeah, I, I think it's it's reasonable to think that on a relatively short time scale, which on you know the time scale we're talking about could be tens of millions of years, if not hundreds of millions of years, life figured out how to you know exploit almost every habitable environment. Now, not every environment is habitable. It can be too hot. It can be too dry. You know, it can have to large concentrations of salts, you, you name it. But uh, there are organisms, as you mentioned, that are called extremophiles because they live, frankly, in environments that we can't. And some of those on the deep sea where pressures are high live at, you know, temperatures above 100 degrees 113. Celsius. Yeah, something like that. Uh, there are ones that live in very salty in, in environments. Um, and, and so all that is a matter of, you know, natural fix natural selection, you know, for membranes that can sustain activity under these conditions. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that go on, but I think, uh, the, the evidence, at least from the world we see today is that, life has been very versatile in its ability to evolve uh you know forms that can sustain be sustained in what for us are unusual environments and and again if you turn all that around what it really says is that uh humans and animals in general are actually not very good at exploiting extreme environments uh whereas bacteria have done it for billions of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, to leave our equatorial home regions. We just the only things we really picked up were new clothes and air conditioning, and that hasn't gotten us that far. Unlike uh, tardigrades, which can, I, my understanding is they can they can persist pretty much everywhere, and they don't need new clothes or air conditioning for it. But. Yeah, but I'd rather be a human. <laughs> me too. To me honest. too. You already referenced comparative biology, which I expect will fit in here. But how, when you examine a microfossil, are you able to tell whether it's photosynthetic or carnivorous or anything else about what it did? Because you you can't observe it the way that we might uh, 
a living creature in a lab or a cat in your lap. And as far as my understanding of fossils goes, the creature's original constituents, at least for macroscopic objects, macroscopic creatures, are gradually replaced by minerals and other deposits. So you're not necessarily even working with the original material. So is there just a close enough resemblance to living creatures that you're able to generate credible hypotheses about how they functioned? Yeah, I mean, largely what we have in the geologic record is morphology, whether that's, you know, a human bone or a clamshell or a trilobite, you name it. And, you know, for those things that are fairly closely related to the living biota, you can say a great deal about them. So if you give me a clamshell that's 100 million years old, I can probably tell you a lot about it because I can compare it to living things that are similar and, and make some quite reasonable deductions. It gets harder as you go back you know, deeper in time to things that don't have close living relatives and gets at its hardest in that you know 85% of Earth history that's mostly microbial. But even there, one of the great things about cyanobacteria is that not only are they probably the most important group of organisms ever, ever to evolve because they're responsible for our oxygen-rich atmosphere, but they, they're different from many kinds of bacteria in they they're commonly larger, they commonly have more complicated uh, um, morphologies and division cycles, and we know a lot about how they decay, how they preserve. So there are things that I can show you that are two billion years old that I have very strong confidence that they were cyanobacteria that worked at least in a broad way like cyanobacteria do today. And then when we start getting eukaryotic life, uh, one thing that one of my former students, Susanna Porter, found uh, deep within the Grand Canyon in some 740 million year old rocks are about 100 micron things sort of look like a flask that's open at one end. And we know that those are very similar to groups of protozoans today that actually eat other protozoans. And in fact, Susanna has found evidence of, probably calling it a bite mark isn't, isn't the best thing, of, but of punctures made by predators on these shells. So sometimes you look at it and you can't say much at all, but in other cases, there is a distinct enough morphology and and sometimes you have evidence of behavior through orientation and things like this that we can use. And they, they tell us a lot. Um, and then finally, there are some examples where we have molecular evidence. Uh, recently, there was a very nice paper on these so-called Ediocaran macrofossils, which most people think, I think, correctly are early animals that are quite distinct from most animals living today. And it was found that they have the remnants of cholesterol in them, which is an animal-specific uh, sterol or steroid molecule. And so even under favorable circumstances, you can even get some molecular preservation that helps zero in on uh, the nature of an organism. Well, I would like to now step back and 
talk about some of the, not that these haven't all been big picture ideas, but some of the bigger picture ideas that emerge from this discussion of early life before hopefully we have some time to touch on Mars. But you wrote somewhere in Life on a Young Planet that from our current vantage point, we tend to think of life as being a process of generation and replacement of species. So in my own words, uh, one day the polar bears are gone and then the next some new sort of finch is discovered on an isolated island. But on a larger scale, evolution is constantly spreading out and bringing with it new forms and ways of living. Could you expand a bit on this idea if I've captured it correctly? Because it does diverge from our intuitive picture of how evolution works yeah no sure i'm happy to and i i think I, I i wrote that in response to what i sometimes call the generation of abraham approach to the history of life that first there were bacteria then there were protozoa then there were animals then there were mammals then there were us and in fact there's probably just as many bacteria now as there were four billion years ago probably more and and so on the broadest scale uh diversity is additive um you start out with all bacteria and archaea then you add single-celled eukaryotes to those but you don't get rid of the bacteria the single-celled eukaryotes can't complete the carbon cycle and sulfur cycle without them still can't um then you add multicellular forms some photosynthetic some heterotrophic to those and and yes on a smaller time scale species come and go um that that's still the case but i i think it is useful to step back and and if you look on the broad scale of our planet's entire history we see that there is this important component of you know just increasing diversity of type not just species mm -hmm. i <laughs> I guess this this might not necessarily, not necessarily count as diversity of type, but diversity of species at least is. I read or heard at some point that they've discovered bacteria that live live exclusively on the side of highways where they consume rubber from ruptured tires. And given that this this wide lens that takes microscopic organisms into account as well as the macroscopic species i mean take covid and and its variants for instance it certainly does seem like they're constantly like with the snap of a finger spreading it out and adapting into various forms and on longer and longer time scales these branch out into diverse morphological types as well yeah i mean you you touch on an important point and that is products of the human presence on earth have created new environments that microbes have have exploited and there is now very active experimental effort to try and exploit those bacterial capacities for the benefit of humans so for example there are any number of labs that are trying to find out whether we can use bacteria to break down plastics in the ocean for example, bacteria to clean up oil spills. So in a sense, yes, it, it is, I think, fitting and proper to just see what, a re what remarkable evolutionary capacities 
bacteria have. And it is also, I think, reasonable to think that it's worth understanding those because they, at least some of them, could be put to service for the betterment of the yeah. human condition. I would feel much more morally comfortable enslaving hordes of bacteria to do our work than uh, horses or other intelligent animals. Seems like a uh, an ethically free lunch to just give to give them a free lunch on on plastic or oil in the ocean. Yeah, it's it's going to yeah. happen. Another theme that we've touched on, particularly with reference to the cyanobacteria and oxygen generation, but organisms and the environment co-evolve, as I mentioned earlier, and as I think will come up again as we talk about Mars. But is there a way of summarizing just how the atmosphere has shifted on a wide scale over the past billions of years on earth like what role do prokaryotes play in all of this beyond maybe just oxygen what have the the general shifts been right so the first thing to know is that the only source of oxygen on this planet that is sufficiently large to oxygenate the atmosphere and oceans is photosynthesis and so the amount of photosynthesis that goes on depends on nutrient availability, which itself is related to physical processes on Earth. Um, and also, you know, if I have a photosynthetic organism here that takes CO2 and water and makes organic matter and oxygen, and then I have a respiring heterotroph like you and me over here that takes organic matter and oxygen and respires it back to CO2 and and uh, water, that's a zero-sum game. And so the way you break that zero-sum is, again, through geologic processes where organic matter produced by photosynthesis, either directly or indirectly, gets buried in, in sediments. And then that creates the possibility that... Uh, oxygen will increase in the environment. So what that tells us is that the process of photosynthesis, the nutrient availability that tells us how much photosynthesis is possible and who's doing it, a lot of that's coming from the biological side, but there's important components of the, the availability of nutrients, the burial of organic matter that come from the physical side. And when we put those together, the pattern, at least, that's emerged is that for the first two billion years of Earth history, there seems to be, at best, very low and transient oxygen in, in Earth's surface environments. Then about 2.4 to 2.2 billion years ago, there's a revolution. And now the atmosphere has some oxygen, the surface ocean does, although most of the deeper ocean remains oxygen-free. And that certainly required cyanobacteria. It also happens at a time when continents are emerging above sea level. And so we have more weathering and erosion of nutrients into the ocean. So I think there's probably represents an interplay of earth and life. The amount of oxygen that accumulated actually wasn't that much, maybe at one or a couple percent of today's levels. And that may have fluctuated a bit through time, but it doesn't start going up permanently until, you know, 
around 600 million years ago, which, and that's when chemical signatures tell us oxygen is starting to go up. We see a fundamental change in Earth's phosphorus cycle at that point, which means there's more nutrients becoming available. Um, we have evidence of that oxygen is going up, and that's on the time scale we start to see macroscopic animals, which need relatively high oxygen concentrations to function. And again, that still didn't bring us to modern levels, uh, probably something like 10 or 15% of today's levels. But then by about 400 million years or so ago, during the Paleozoic era, so-called, uh, we have evidence that oxygen is going up to essentially modern modern levels. And as I said, I think earlier, that coincides with the evolution of land plants, which have some decay-resistant tissues that accumulate in sediments, giving us coal and things like that. So on, on the long run, then it looks like you can divide Earth history into kind of three chapters, no oxygen, a little oxygen, and a lot of oxygen. And the boundaries between those three chapters do seem to represent places where in various ways, the physical and biological earth are starting to interact in new ways. That gets us to exactly where I wanted to go. We, we've skipped a lot to reach the present, but with with the exception maybe of some of the experimental research programs we've talked about with regard to figuring out the early processes that or the processes that led to early life and uh, perhaps their relationship to synthetic biology. Most of our conversation has been backward looking and far back backward looking at that. But granted that your expertise in is in, in what's happened over the past billions of years of life, how does it equip you to think about what's going on in Earth's life and atmosphere today that other biologists or zoologists might not be attuned to. And I know that this is a, a huge subject uh, that we don't have time to get into all the nitty gritty of, but I, I just like a, a general idea. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, I'd be hesitant to say that other biologists aren't attuned to this, but I do think that aspects of the past do provide a distant mirror that helps us to understand what the rest of the 21st century and beyond may be like. Uh, some years ago, um, I got interested in what is the lar largest known mass extinction at the end of the Permian period, 252 million years ago. And I, I just started thinking about what might cause this. And I was very taken by the fact that geologists had done a very good job of documenting the facts of the extinction and some of the environmental changes but not a very good job of relating that to who died and, and who survived. And it struck me that that was a little bit like going to a murder scene and not looking at the victim. Um, and so what I did was it, it, it struck me that some of the physical processes going on might have produced a lot of carbon dioxide. And we now know, we didn't at the time, but we now know that this is the time when some of the largest volcanism that we know of in the history of the planet took place and it would have spewed immense amounts of co2 into the atmosphere on a fairly short time scale so 
what I did with my buddy, Dick Bombach, was literally, we went to the library for three months and just read the experimental literature on how do organisms respond when you subject them to high CO2 levels. And it turns out some respond very poorly. Some can actually compensate for it. And it turns out that when you divide the living biota up into the things that are vulnerable and perhaps more tolerant of you know, increased CO2, that does an excellent job of actually predicting what did and did not go extinct at the end of the Permian period. And so I think uh, that was probably the first time anyone ever said rapid increase in CO2 could be very bad for the biota. Well, fast forward to the 21st century, and we are now increasing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at a geologically very rapid rate. Uh, we are seeing the uh, effects of this on the biota, which are very similar in many ways to the effects that we see recorded at the time of the Permian extinction. And it's led to some, in, in my case, some you know, very happy collaborations that uh, I recently co-authored a paper with a group in Germany who are probably the leading lab looking at the physiological response to elevated CO2 among marine animals. And, and I think it, it shows that, you know, the past does have something to tell us about the future. Uh, it certainly is consistent with everything we're observing today. And it suggests that uh, unless we are smart enough to, to change our ways, that we will move toward what well, we are moving and have already moved significantly toward a warmer earth that is going to have consequences for different types of plant and animal. And importantly, it will have consequences for humans as the capacity of different areas for agriculture will change, water availability will change. So um, we're heading into an unknown future, but in some ways, what the past tells us is that we should think very hard about how we collectively can respond to uh, what we have done industrially uh, and, and all of us contribute to it, uh, but how we can try to rein in global change in a way that will, you know, vouchsafe happy, habitable environments for our grandchildren. I've had to work on my ability to uh, generate natural transitions. And my natural transition is we've now learned about your, your wealth of experience in the past of this world and now the future of this world, but your experience also extends to other worlds. <laughs> and I understand that you, you served on the team of NASA's Mars exploit or exploration rover, probably exploration, yeah, not exploitation, yeah, probably exploration <laughs> rover, <laughs> MER mission. And given that this mission ended about five years ago, maybe before we get into your role, could you just lay out the basics of what the the mission consisted in the the non exploitative explorative mission? Yeah, this was a the the, the first of a series of rover missions which you know there are two others still operating today 
Um, it was not to find evidence of life, either ancient or modern, on Mars, but to understand Martian environments, past and present. And in essence, the rovers, uh, their names were uh, uh, Opportunity and Curia, and Spirit and Opportunity, um, which might ring bells with, with uh, some of your viewers. And in essence, these rovers were doing much the kind of work that I've done on Earth in the past. They look at ancient Martian rocks. There were chemical you know, chemical uh, instruments that could tell us something about the uh, chemistry and mineralogy of these rocks. There's even a hand lens, so you could see uh, very fine scale textural features of, of the rocks, a series of cameras. And so really for about 13 years, um, Opportunity in particular was able to traverse among outcrops of ancient rocks and tell us something about, uh, you know, the history. It's, it's our first real ability to try and reconstruct the history of another planet. And it was, you know, really a privilege to be part of that team. Yeah. And what was the part you played? What was your role in the project? Well, too, um, I, I think one of the reasons why I was asked to, to join the team was simply that I did have this experience of, uh, you know, trying to understand environmental history from, from ancient rock. So along with all the other team members, uh, I was involved in interpreting what the, uh, rovers told us on, on a daily basis also i was one of uh several people uh over the course of the mission who was responsible for what's called long-term planning and and to think about that uh you have to make both tactical and um strategic decisions you know tactical decision is what should we do tomorrow a uh, strategic decision is what are the big questions we can ask of this outcrop and how do we go about answering them? And so I was one of the long-term planning or, or uh, strategic uh, leads as well. But it was very much, uh, the nice thing about the mission was that, you know, everyone's voice was important. We all listened to each other. Uh, we learned how to integrate the results from different types of observations. And because of that, you know, we were able to learn something about what Mars was like as a young mm. planet. But you made it clear at the outset of your response that this project was not so much or not at all about astrobiology, but was really about geology. And this notwithstanding, did you determine, determine whether or not the soil or terrain more generally was conducive to life? To life? And I suppose that in asking this, there are two questions. One, do you think it is possible that there might have been life, at least as we know life on Earth in Mars past? And in a more forward-looking sense, could we in theory transport any of Earth's own microbes there and expect them to thrive? Oh, there's, a, there's a number of questions in there. Let me try and unpack it. Um, yes, the, the mission had no instruments that would you know be specifically designed to detect or characterize life 
the idea was to say, what were environments like? Because if the environment is not conducive to life, then the, the story is is over. Now, some of the more recent missions have more sophisticated instrumentation that can help, although I'm not sure they can or have uh, reported anything that is definitive evidence of, of life past or presence on, on Mars. But what we were trying to do was to understand the planetary history, which then provides a framework for thinking about some possible history of life. And, and you know, before we ever uh, landed in Meridiani Planum for opportunity, people had known from, you know, remotely sensed observations by satellites that Mars was once wetter than it is now. There's ancient river systems. There are ancient deltas. Uh, lots of things that tell, tell us that in the past there was liquid water on Mars. Now, the rocks that we looked at on Opportunity were there are signs of water, but as I like to say, it's it's signs of water waving goodbye. Uh, so we have certain, uh, you know, mineralogies and, and features that could only have formed in the presence of water, but they would not persist in or in the, I'm sorry, in, they would persist only in the absence of water. So certain types of minerals form when, you know, they need water to form, but if you keep water around, they will transform into other minerals. And so what we found, and uh, my, my former postdoc, Nick Tosca, who's now a professor at the University of Cambridge, uh, were able to determine that, you know, in the places we were looking at, Mars went from at one moment being wet environments, but as they dried out, you basically left the habitable zone of life and there's very little evidence that they ever got wet again. So, and I think other places have seen this, that there's, you know, there's evidence that water could have been present for tens of thousands of years in some places. There were lakes, there were deltas, that sort of thing. But, you know, you spread that out over a period of a billion years and it could have been dry much of the time. And, you know, some people, myself included, but not everyone is of the opinion that while Mars was at some times relatively wet, that early Mars was episodically wet and dry. And so it it's the implications for life are very different if you think that Mars was wet for a billion years versus Mars was wet for a hundred thousand years, then dry for a million, then wet for 10,000, then dry for another 2 million. Um, and we're, we're still struggling to understand the details of that. But I think it's at least reasonable to think that even on in the earlier history of Mars, which clearly has evidence for running and standing water, that those might not have been continuously present. Um, so at this point, we don't know whether life ever began on Mars. If it did, it didn't persist, at least at the planetary surface. Um, I think if you just drop random bacteria onto Mars, which we've probably done uh, through some of the rovers, they would not be likely to persevere because there is so little water so little access 
to to nutrients. So I, I think if you want to have life on Mars, you got to get Matt Damon to go up there and grow potatoes in some uh, some human built structure. Uh, I, I I'm skeptical of the idea that Mars is currently not only a, an inhabited planet, but at the surface at least a habitable mm. planet. Would you add the caveat that you're skeptical that at the surface it is a habitable habitable planet, but only if Martian life resembles Earth life to in the sense that it requires water? Because presumably there are uh, myriad other possibilities that life could take that where, where water isn't so vital. Well, that, that's an interesting question, and and a lot of people have thought about it. Um, I I think we, in some ways, instinctively think about life as we know it, which is equivalent to life on Earth. Um, as I used to say to my students, that you know, if you don't make that assumption, games without rules have many possible outcomes, and and so you can just, you know, speculate all over the place. Now, having said that. Um, Water is a very unusual substance in many ways, and it's a particularly biofriendly substance. And so while there might be places in other types of planets where other molecules could play the role that water does on most rocky planets, including Mars, I think water is probably the only game in town. And there are certain characteristics, physical characteristics of water um that uh are likely to affect life of of any any sort you know on this planet uh once you get to a salinity above a certain point life doesn't exist I and mean, it's the reason that our ancestors used to salt meat or add sugar to preserve fruits and uh that that lowers the so-called water activity that is the percentage of water molecules that at any given moment can participate in the chemistry of water um and i think likely the limits imposed by water activity the limits imposed by something called chaotropy which some uh ions are actually destructive of polymers like peptides or nucleic acids so i i suspect that while you know, we don't know that life on Earth is the only type of life that can exist. My guess is that wherever we find life, it'll be based on carbon. There's a fairly large chance it will be environmentally based on on water, um, and and that's about what what you can say. Um, that's a very helpful you know. answer. Yeah, okay. that's great. I've spoken to one other astrobiologist. I don't know if you want to consider yourself an astrobiologist, but I've spoken to one other, I'll call you one. I've spoken to one other astrobiologist on the show and her name's Clara Sousa Silva. She, I think she was at Harvard for a while. She's a bard now, but she was part of this project, I believe led by Sarah Seeger of MIT that you might recall this a few years ago, they believed they'd found a, a signature of life on Venus, uh, particularly in the clouds of Venus. But the way that Clara works is by looking at the spectra of exoplanets to determine the contents of their atmospheres. And based on these contents, she's then able to deduce whether there's a possibility of life there because some atmospheres 
particularly atmospheres in her case that are high in a compound called phosphine are highly unlikely without life because they require a particularly complex chemistry that you are unlikely to find in geologic features. But as you know, as we've already talked about, life has very much created the atmosphere that we now inhabit on Earth, which is why um, finding phosphine would be so important. But is there, in, in the same way that I sort of simplistically laid out how her astrophysics and chemistry work, functions in an astrobiological context is there a somewhat is there a simple way of describing the way that your more terrestrially focused work would become applicable to astrobiology in the event of a mission that were explicitly devoted to astrobiology so for instance what sorts of things on a rover like spirit and opportunity would you want it to have so that it would be optimized to search for life when you're getting data sent back to you yeah I mean, those are there's a series of good questions in there i'd um, like to hear that i think Thank the you. First thing, I, I, I think the first thing to say is that the way you can do astrobiology depends on what you're looking at. Uh, the kind of work that I've been privileged to do is something we can do in our own solar system because you can go there and at least send a send a rover, if not a not a human being. And I, I think over the next 20 years, we're going to see missions to moons of Jupiter and 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 Saturn that are candidates for uh, biological planets. Um, the kind of work you were talking about on looking at planetary atmospheres that's what we can do to looking at extrasolar planets at least within our own cosmic vicinity you know a couple of light years and and uh, people like Sarah Seeger and others have made real progress in our ability to actually understand the uh, chemical composition of, of other atmospheres and that that's all exciting work one of the questions which provokes a lot of debate is whether there is any atmospheric signature that is uniquely and diagnostically biological. And I, I have to tell an anecdote here because years ago I was having dinner with uh, a man named Dave Stevenson, who's a Caltech professor, one of the great planetary scientists of our time. And we were just talking about this, this subject. And, you know, I sort of parroted what everybody else was saying at the time and still are largely that you know if you found an atmosphere that simultaneously had oxygen and methane since those two don't coexist at equilibrium that would be evidence of life and dave just smiled and he says you know i'm willing to bet you that when that observation is made within a year there will be at least six published papers showing models of how that can happen without invoking life and i think that's that's certainly what happened on a more rapid time scale with the phosphine observation. And, and so I think it, it, it remains an interesting question that deserves careful thought about, you know, what can you say definitively about habitability or, or inhabitation based on a planetary atmosphere? And then, you know, if you, if you think about it, for most of the universe, the only way we'll ever know if there's life out there is if they tell us 
you know, that's that's really uh, where that comes in. So I, I think we're going to see more uh, bio-focused instrumentation on on different missions. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who would like to go uh, to Enceladus, uh, moon of, of Saturn, that certainly has um, uh, geysers. And those geysers are known to have organic molecules in them. And so you can take instruments that would gather and analyze the composition of those geyser effluvia. Um, on, going back to Mars, there are more sophisticated ways of examining organic matter. Uh, my own feeling is that what we would love to do, and I know it's technologically challenging, would be to actually drill relatively deep holes into the Mars subsurface, where not only is there some possibility that there is a subsurface biota, but more importantly, uh, unlike surficial materials, things at depth might have had less alteration due to interactions with the surface environment. So there's a lot of things that will happen. It is, you know, putting together a mission to any of these places is really challenging. And I admire the people who, who do these missions and, and, and carry them out. But uh, my guess is that over the next 20 years, we will see both increasingly sophisticated and biologically oriented missions within our own solar system and an increasingly sophisticated uh, efforts to understand planets beyond our solar system based on chemical signatures that we can uh, uh, see by remote sensing. Well, Andy, this has been all around terrific in so many ways. We only touched on a small fraction of your work. I mean, there's there's a lot that happened between that early life and where we are today. But I am so thankful for your time. This was a, a great start on this subject for the show, and there's there's room for so much more about it. So again, thanks for your time. This was really great. Thank you. It was fun. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.